Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Today marks our entry into our sixth year of presenting these forums on the average of six times a year. In all, we have presented 34 forums. This is our 35th. Our compelling rubric remains what it was when Archibald Cox was our speaker, our first speaker in September of 1980, namely, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker is Sir Harold Wilson, Prime Minister of Great Britain from 1964 to 70 and 74 to 76. He represented the same district in the House of Commons for 38 years until his retirement in May of 1983. In 1964, he was elected Britain's youngest Prime Minister. His years as Prime Minister included such events as Britain's entry into uh, uh, the a common market and European economic community, pacts with NATO, crises in Rhodesia and Northern Ireland, to name a few. Early in his career, he headed a number of delegations to Moscow to negotiate Soviet-British trade pacts. His recent book, The Chariot of Israel, deals with the security of Israel in the Middle East and, and related issues. I trust he will address some of those issues. He is the most qualified of all to talk on today's theme, the view from number 10 Downing Street, in that he occupied that residence longer than any other peacetime prime minister in this century. Put it this way, the front door of number 10 Downing Street has no handle on the outside. It can only be opened from the inside and he's prepared and uniquely qualified to do that for us. His friend, Ernest Kay, wrote in his intimate portrait of Harold Wilson that whatever his enemies may say about his lack of smile or absence of humor, he often smiles, sometimes guffaws, I've heard him this morning, and has an ironic wit and infectious sense of humor. I won't tell you the story he told me just before we came in here. <laughs> as a man and even as a politician, I like the even, he is kind. He has helped more people than even his own amazing memory can remember. He has an abiding interest in people, all the more so if they happen to be admirers of his. Kay continues, and I conclude, Harold Wilson has no expensive tastes. He does prefer beer to wine, cider to champagne, tinned salmon to smoked salmon, fish and chips to lobster Newburgh, and might we add, or dare we add, Westminster Minneapolis to Westminster Abbey, at least for today. <laughs> Welcome. 
Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, may I begin by turning around and saying, on my behalf and yours, thank you for that most powerful rendering of Land of Hope and Glory, and despite current difficulties, it still is. On a lecture tour like this, it is a great relief to have the privilege of addressing a mixed forum, and in particular one which is, to a very considerable extent, religiously inspired. Gives me the opportunity, for example, of referring to my wife Mary, who did a wonderful job at 10 Downing Street, and who was herself the daughter of uh, a congregational uh, minister. Uh, he, by the way, in those awful pre-World War I days, had actually left school at the age of 10 and started work in the mill in those days, but study at night and all the odd hours led to his acceptance as a trade trainee minister. Today in Britain, of course, has been to some extent a virtually coming together of the churches outside the state church and the Roman Catholic Church. And I may say Mary takes a leading part in good causes, London and nationwide, quite apart from her writings of poetry. May I say she sells far more copies of her books of poetry or books about poetry than I sell for all my turgid political writings. <laughs> now, a little reference was made about my taking Britain into the common market. I thought I'd better comment on that. I plead not guilty. <laughs> Mr. Heath did it. There was a period, uh, I, I was PM twice, and then we uh, called an election, and the Public opinion polls were so heavy in our favour, and it was swelteringly hot, that a lot of people didn't bother to vote, Mr. Heath got in. And uh, now he is a, a firm believer in the common market, and all credit to him for standing by his beliefs. He didn't stay there very long because uh, the Conservative Party had anxieties about him, and a lady called Margaret, <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher, stood against, oh yes, you see, we used to elect our leaders and I used to chaff him about the fact that he had emerged through the, as they call it, through the sort of mysteries of the Conservative Party. So, to show off, he said he would have an election. He assumed nobody would stand against him, but Margaret did, and he lost. But, uh, and he's, fight, he's been fighting ever since, fighting her and fighting uh, because he is a firm believer in the European common market. I think that's very honourable, I mean, on, on his part. It is terribly important. It is bringing nations together economically, who've been fighting one another for centuries and so on, and I'm not criticising him for that, but I happen to be more interested in the Commonwealth uh, than, than, than in Europe. And as I say, French agriculture is so inefficient, we're spending most of our money is going to keep them going there. Now. The view from number 10, which I think I'm supposed to be discussing, is hardly exciting. To the front you can see nothing but the Foreign Office and Her Majesty's Treasury. And Her Majesty's Treasury are always scheming against whatever government is in power. Uh, though I had the great advantage of having worked in the war under Churchill, and I knew a lot about the workings of the civil service. And I was able to counter some of these abnormal activities. Uh, during that time. At the back of number 10, however, you have a wonderful view of Horse Guards Parade, 
It's an open space and some quite good Victorian government office blocks beyond. During my four periods as Prime Minister, Mary, of course, uh, always uh, went with me on state visits to Washington, D.C., a number of times with, I knew a number of presidents in Moscow and uh, to the historic international conference at Helsinki, the 10th anniversary of which we are celebrating uh, around this present time. Perhaps I might say a little word about Helsinki. We all arrived, uh, well actually what had happened before was uh, there had been a meeting of high officials and ministers among the fr free world and uh, it had been decided that I should go to the Soviet Union. I've been there a number of times when I was a young trade minister all those years ago and I was asked by my colleagues to go there to try and find out what they want to make of it and are they positive or is it just going to be a propaganda show and so on and so indeed I did go and then uh, I remember arriving at, at Helsinki, I went to the British Embassy of course and um, about ten minutes after I got there the United States Ambassador to Helsinki uh, came in to see me and he said he'd been instructed by Washington to sound me out because they wanted me to uh, because they, they wanted to make me the president of the conference and they wanted to get that done before the Russians had to go. Uh, and so I, I was quite surprised and almost honored and I said yes. Quarter of an hour later the Russian, the Soviet ambassador comes in and he said with a very broad accent uh, that um, the Soviet uh, delegation under their leaders uh, had decided they wanted me uh, to become chairman of the conference <laughs> to stop the Americans getting it. <laughs> well, it was in any case a great privilege. Since then, I, I fear that our then high hopes have not uh, materialized and we are now moving into the nearness of the Star Wars between the president and the Soviet leader. Peace is the aim of all of us on both sides of the Atlantic and I should like to say a few words about the stage setting. Here I would pay tribute, I never interfere in the politics of another country and I didn't like them interfering in mine neither. But here I pay tribute uh, to the President for the approach he seeks to make for a de-escalation of potential conflict. And while I'm referring to him I should like to welcome his, another action, his very clear criticism of and warning to the South African regime, a regime which day by day compiles more insults to the world community and more attacks on some of the bravest fighters for peace and progress within South Africa itself. Only a few days before I came to the United States for this tour, I was guest speaker at a great meeting in the Houses of Parliament Historic Hall, going back that particular hall several hundreds of years. And we were all meeting irrespective of our political views and we had people from all over the country. We were all meeting to make clear our horror 
over the despicable behavior of South Africa in respect of Mandela after all those years of incarceration. Now, the view from number 10, your title, not mine, <clears throat> the view from number 10 is worldwide, despite the buildings across the way, I've referred to the Foreign Office and the, uh, and the others, <clears throat> Treasury. We are not, of course, uh, as you are, an all-out powerful nation, though we are in a position, partly because of our long experience, that we can help our friends and our allies uh, by the depth of our uh, experience. And for all of us, I think, for your country and ours, and others too, of the free world, uh, the, <coughs> view, the question of number 10 is and must be, uh, and Washington as well, directed to the Soviet Union and all that is happening at the present time. And I, I thought you might want me to say a little bit about that because I've had very long experience of the Russians. It goes back to the, I mean, of the Soviet citizens. They don't like being called Russians. Some of them aren't, most of them aren't Russians anyway. It goes back to the end of World War II with the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And because of the war, there had been no parliamentary general election in Britain since 1935. And the wartime coalition of all the major parties, Conservative, Labour, Liberal, and so on, uh, had... Uh, led the country. Uh, but then, at the, as soon as the war ended, Winston Churchill, on whose staff I served for many years, and going around the country I've been telling a lot of stories about him, about his greatness in my view, uh, but he then called a general election, and to his surprise and everybody else's he lost. Labour came in. I may say every one of the new entrants, including myself, uh, assumed that the Conservatives would win, but that the good signs we were getting in our own constituencies were in all cases a tribute to our own particular performance in that constituency. In fact, we were being carried on a flood tide. And uh, he was uh, upset and a little and so on. And uh, Clement Attlee, who had been Churchill's number two in the wartime coalition, won a landslide victory. Despite myself being a Yorkshireman, I had won a Lancashire seat, and there's a lot of trouble between Yorkshire and Lancashire, especially at cricket times. <laughs> and uh, I may say I was across the... Uh, I had lived on Merseyside from the age of 16. My father had changed his job from Yorkshire and gone there. And across the river we lived from those who were later to become my constituents and frequent visitors here uh, to your country, the Beatles. They were a fine lot of chaps, let me tell you. And they did a great deal to try and keep youngsters out of mischief and give them something. The number of people, of kids who started forming Beatle groups, well, uh, it was very, very pleasing and they were remarkable young men. Now, on my arrival in Parliament, the end of the war, 1945, uh, Attlee made me a junior minister dealing with public works and with housing. Uh, but he had started already uh, to send me to overseas conferences. There was one here in Washington under Menzies of Australia, Prime Minister Menzies of Australia, to create a new world system to help the underdeveloped world. And it was a wonderful experience. I was, uh, as I say, I was Minister of Public Buildings and Works. It was a wonderful experience for a young minister of only 30 years of age. And it's had an effect on my life ever since. 
Indeed, it was due to this that after Labour went out of office, I set up in Britain an organisation, a movement called War on Want. And it is still active after all those years in helping backward countries, underdeveloped countries, countries suffering from uh, bad crops, bad harvest and all the rest of it, uh, and those particularly where external war or internal struggles have created starvation. And I'm very proud of that. Then came, may I say, going back to those years, the final meeting of the victorious powers held in Moscow. Our new and very weighty, physically and in every other way, Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin was representing us. I remember the first time I met him, he shook hands with me and said, I won't get up, I'm too fat. <laughs> and Ernest Bevin, despite his dislike of the Soviets, and it was strong, he was, may I say, he'd been a very, very powerful industrial leader of the biggest industrial organization in Britain, uh, trade union and so on. But he felt we should at least try and carry on into the peace period some of the exchanges and links of the wartime allies, and he thought we should do it through the medium of trade. And he mentioned this to Attlee. Attlee sent for me. As I said, very clipped. He said, moving up, President Department, uh, Secretary of Overseas Trade, anybody wants you in Moscow, better start packing. <laughs> that was his longest speech ever, that one. <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't a cabinet post. I was under that very great man, Sir Stafford Cripps, as president of the Board of Trade. He later gave away and I, I took his job. That was later on. And I went to Moscow. I was dispatched to Moscow. There as a youngster, I had to negotiate with a man who was by common consent the most skilled trade negotiator in the world, Anastasi Ivanovich Mikoyan, later president of the Soviet Union, a position to which another Soviet minister I dealt with over the years Andrei Gromyko has now just been recently elevated uh, to be president of the Soviet Union. And what none of us knows, and what three-quarters of the Russians don't know, is whether we should say he's been elevated, or has he been kicked upstairs out of the way. <laughs> I myself am not quite sure, so don't listen to anybody who is sure about this. Now then, um, I was sent there to Moscow by Atlee. And in the summer of 1947, I returned. I hadn't got an agreement by that time. Terribly hot weather, all-night sittings, a chronic shortage of food, sometimes didn't get any meal at all. Mikoyan, with whom I was dealing, Anastasi Ivanovich Mikoyan, who, as I say, was, later was president of the Soviet Union, he had to work very odd hours because, you see, Stalin was the boss. And Stalin used to begin his day's work in the late afternoon, about three or four o'clock. Uh, and then he would stay up until uh, uh, the, the, the small hours and even the bigger hours, and all his ministers had to do the same. Therefore, I was usually negotiating at two o'clock in the morning. May I say, despite the fact that Russia was starving, there was no shortage of food at the uh, commissar level. Uh, and uh, on my second visit, he gave a big lunch for me at 15 courses. And all the time they were raising toasts to Anglo-Soviet friendship. Mikoyan was doing that. And I was taking a very careful sip because I knew how they liked to get their guests <clears throat> drunk. <laughs> and uh, 
Then he was saying, but that was only sip. Do you not go all the way in believing? And all the rest of it. And then two of my chaps passed out. Flat on the floor. <laughs> no laughing matter, I assure you. Flat on the floor. And they were taken upstairs. And I sent one of my secretaries to see they were all right. And he came down and said, hey, you better watch it, boss. He says, there's a hospital ward upstairs with a doctor and six nurses. Uh, three, sorry, a doctor and three nurses and six beds. There just happened to be six members of my delegation, which I thought was a <laughs> not, not very, very exciting. However, we managed uh, to uh, uh, go because three Russians went down very quickly. We were winning 3-2. Our prestige soared. This will go down in history as long as history was written in Russia. We then went upstairs just to put on our coats and, and all the rest of it, despite the fact it was July, at which point one of my fellows, he was a, a, a permanent civil servant, very dry sort of man he was. He suddenly went flat on his back, 3-3. Three, three. <laughs> a colleague of mine and I, we pulled him up, and then he roared like that and then came to equilibrium and beamed and smiled on us we had won the day <laughs> and we went back to the hotel I remember I went to bed I thought I'd go to sleep and think things through a bit and I was wakened up three hours later and they said that all the people had been returned to the hotel and they were all right and they were carried into the hotel on stretches all I could remember to say was bottoms up I suppose <laughs> now can I now go to something rather more important the uh, visit as prime minister uh, this was the year of the Helsinki talks the United States and Western Europeans had met before and agreed that I should go to see as I've mentioned earlier what was happening uh, and what their, their lines were and um, now one of the big problems facing the United States and indeed the whole Western world because we are really all one and may we always be so uh, the whole Western world of course tends to react at the same time to the fundamental Soviet economic weakness and the nuclear challenge now the economic weakness of the Soviet Union really has to be experienced to believe it. Uh, it, it is extreme, in an extremely backward condition uh, and of course with the nuclear challenge, with the, the resources that are being placed there, uh, this makes their economic condition worse. And my experience of the Russians when they were getting hungry they were very much more difficult to deal with. Now I don't know the answer. There are a lot of people who do know the answer but I wouldn't rely on, on them all. For one thing, I no longer see the internal documents of the Western nations. Uh, nor, I hope, does Gospodin Chanenko or uh, any of his colleagues. My reading of the situation from outside is that the United States is playing its cards, may I say, with great skill and subtlety. And may this continue. May they resolve not to take no for an answer. I never intervene, of course, in the politics of another country. But my impression is 
as I say, that the White House is handling this matter with both gravitas, as the Romans used to say, and imagination. The Founding Fathers, of course, for whom we all have a deeply reverent respect, created for you a fundamentally unworkable con constitution, if you don't mind putting it that way. <laughs> and it is the greatest tribute to the United States and to a long succession of its leaders that they've ignored these problems, they've even risen above them, indeed using them to the advantage of your people when appropriate in the United States interests and finding new ways of helping the wider world. The most difficult thing, I think, in international dealing is handling a country which is not in every sense strong but has great weakness, including economic weakness. And this is true certainly of Russia. Not, of course, in military terms. There's no weakness there, as far as one knows, uh, in nuclear terms, but in its economics breakdown. I uh, have, as I say, studied the Russians very closely. When I retired voluntarily from the premiership after those four periods of office, as I say, that's equal in Gladstone, uh, it was on my 60th birthday. But since then, I have had a lot of contact with the Russians. No, not in a fellow traveling way, but I have been during this period, as I say, president of the Great Britain USSR Association. Uh, which is purely for cultural exchanges. And our members include senior members of the Foreign Office staff. My deputy is one of the greatest war horses of all, or heroes, sorry, of all, Fitzroy MacLean, whose contribution to history includes the successful freeing of a great part of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean when he was commander-in-chief there. My 20th visit, uh, the task of the, uh, to, to the uh, Soviet Union, uh, they told me it was my 20th visit. I, they said, how many times you've been here? I said, oh, about 14, 15. And, and the old boy said, this is his 20th visit. <laughs> and uh, it was on that occasion that we had a very, very interesting discussion uh, about one of your former presidents, President Nixon. Um, they think very highly of him there. May I say, I'm, I'm not going to Watergate at all. I, I said some years ago, and he agreed with it, what he should have done was that proceeding from the southwest in a northeasterly direction behind these characters, he should have kicked them, uh, kicked them out of the way. Uh, but in Russia, when I was there just over a year ago and I met Solomentsev, the Prime Minister, I said to him, uh, am I right in thinking that among all the American presidents, Nixon did stand out together with one or two others uh, in the matter of relations with the Soviet Union while at the same time being extremely tough in standing by the uh, needs and, and the wishes of the United States and of the free world. I didn't use the word free world but I, I implied it. And Solomon said yes that is absolutely true. He said no American president has got on with us better even yes he was very very tough, very very tough on American interests. Then the old boy taking the notes, who'd taken the notes from me 30 years before, said, except President Roosevelt, of course. But now, the Russian economy, as I say, is in a very questionable state now. Uh, it is said that their consumption of bread is more than the whole of Western Europe and the United States put together. For years they've been ruled by these rather old gentlemen, 
uh, in their 70s, apart from Chenenko, who is in the upper 80s. And now we have Gorbachev. I'll come to him. He, I met him on his recent visit to London, and I was greatly impressed. All his predecessors have been Stalin-trained, in effect, or trained by those who followed Stalin. He was just 31 when Stalin died. That is to say, in Soviet terms, he's only just out of his short trousers. I ask this question, but I can't answer it. Will he be his own man as head of the Soviet Union, charting the future of his country, supported by a relatively new and now relatively young team? Or will he be, in Latin terminology, a primus inter pares, uh, setting or seeking to set a new approach, but having all the time to defer to his senior and indeed older colleagues? I have always maintained that in most well-administered countries you can always find and appoint, you can always hire even, sound men and ladies who can give you the answers to the questions you put. That is not difficult in finding people to do that. In my view, the really important job, not only in politics or international affairs, but in almost every sphere of life, the really important job and the really important people who have to carry it out are the people who, as I would put it, can formulate the questions to the answers before you go rushing after the answers. This is true in your country, it's true in mine, and it is one of the primary tasks of the President and the Prime Minister. It must equally be the first preoccupation of Russia's new leader. And when he puts those questions, he must, or at least I hope he will, press them the, to the full, rejecting all the old knee-jerk reactions which are common to most countries but particularly common to the Soviet Union. He must particularly start giving his mind to his forthcoming meeting with your president. The get-together has been given a name, as good as any other, Star Wars, uh, I suppose, but what counts isn't its name nor indeed any attempt by either leader to concentrate on being able just to stay there a time and go home and saying, I told him so, I told him. That isn't what we need. We may not expect agreement in a single meeting. It would be a tremendous achievement to get it, and I hope we shall. But it is, I believe, incumbent on both sides to keep the issues open and on returning home to see whether there are ways to steer around the rocks which may have caused trouble on the first go-round. And both leaders, I feel, <clears throat> need to recognize that the main aim is not to flatten the other or to make him look foolish or to create difficulties for him when he goes home to his own country, either way. I think it, what is needed is to open the doors to a gradually, perhaps, gradually, percipient understanding that these problems can over a period months and years, not hours and days, be diminished and that ultimately they might become the basis for a constructive settlement, a settlement which will become a center point in the history books which a new generation will be studying well into the next century. Let us therefore hope that the view from number 10 and from the White House may improve and the world become free to fight what I once called the only war we seek. 
That was the war on world poverty, the war on want. That was when I set up the war on want movement. The war to keep, to help suffering backward nations. Above all, the two most important names of all, the spreading of peace, of mutual help and assistance for those in need. For world agreement, not on a drab uniformity, but on the basis of mutual assistance, mutual regard, and a mutual determination to help those in need. Finally, just for a moment, I cannot come to this great part of the United States without remembering the greatest friend I ever had in the United States. I'm referring, of course, to Hubert Humphrey. Hubert was a great man. A very, very great man indeed. I knew him when we were both very young people. Nobody ever thought that uh, he would uh, become as well known. I don't think many people thought I was going to be Prime Minister either. But um, I got to know him all those years ago when I was the head of a British delegation into Washington as a very young junior minister on the whole question that I mentioned earlier, chaired by Menzies of the starving peoples of the world and Hubert was one of the greatest to respond over the years to that particular problem and um, he was vice president as we all know and I, he, he was coming to London uh, in the spring I recall every week the Prime Minister of Great Britain and, and the United Kingdom I should say that means Northern Ireland uh, every week the Prime Minister has an audience of the Queen as it is put and discuss and tells her what's going on and various other things and of course I told her that Hubert was coming and she she seemed very pleased and she said tell me do you think he would like to be invited to Windsor she has a dinner party every year at Windsor you see she goes to Windsor for a certain part of the year in the spring I said I'm sure you would love it mum and she said well I, I, I I'll, I'll get arrangements made to the American Embassy. And he came, and he was sitting right opposite. It was a very long table. And he was sitting opposite, and he absolutely charmed her. By his absolute genuineness. I mean, I, I know most people are genuine, but some are more genuine than others. <laughs> and, uh, in all countries. And he, he really made a, 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 you know, a great impression. And then it was time to go to bed. Now, at Windsor Castle, there's a very, very long corridor with all, what do I put it, all the um, uh, different bedrooms, well, bed the suites, they're not bedrooms and so on, on the left-hand side. Uh, and at that far end there, the royal family have their various bedrooms and so on. And then there's the middle, and then just close to the middle, there are the guest rooms, two or three of them. And uh, Hubert and I went into one of our sitting rooms. And uh, we didn't want to go to bed. So much to talk about. And uh, then uh, he said, I said to him, well, it's absolutely wonderful to be here. He said, you know, starting as a humble boy uh, in Minnesota, working in his father's drugstore, and you, very humble origins in Yorkshire. And here we are, sitting together drinking the Queen of England's whiskey. <laughs> now I hope there'll always be something like that uh, going on. 
But I, as I say, I repeat, and, and, and I, I have the privilege, uh, as a result of uh, friends, of his family, members, uh, that when I'm here, uh, that uh, sort of during this present visit, I, I shall be addressing a special, uh, a specially convened meeting uh, in praise of Hubert Humphrey. Whenever I tread within this great state of yours, I can never feel very far away from Hubert. And if you don't feel far away from Hubert, it gives you the chance, just for a moment, to remember what greatness can be. Oh, sorry, will you put it on again? Leave it on. I forgot. Then you won't have to bother with it later. Thank you. Very well. Are you calling the question? Yes. Sir? You sit down and I'll... There we go. You'll be fine. I've read that in Parliament, Harold Wilson was more on his feet than off, and we're glad that you've been on your feet in front of us today. Uh, this is the break time when those of you who must leave may do so. It's also a time when you can pass questions that have occurred to you to the aisles, and uh, the ushers will pick them up. This is just to remind the radio audience that you're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis that our speaker today is Harold Wilson, former Prime Minister of Great Britain. We're, we'll be dealing with some questions promptly. Uh, may I, sir, invite you to return to the podium? I understand you're no stranger to a pulpit, being a Congregationalist and often reading lessons in your church, so uh, we welcome you back to the pulpit. Let me ask you this. Is it true that following a trip to Australia as a youngster, you said to your mother on the way home to England, I'm going to be a member of Parliament when I grow up, and I'm going to be Prime Minister. Well, it is actually, though, in <laughs> fact, I decided that before I went to Australia. Oh, I see. <laughs> my, but my, the fires were lighted there. My uncle Harold, after whom I was named, as you might guess, he had suffered in Manchester from bronchitis, and Manchester is a very bad place to have bronchitis here. And, and weak lungs, and he'd gone out to Australia um, to uh, work on the railway. He was an electrician. They were building transcontinental railway. When he got to Kalgoorlie, he got off, uh, and then set up a small business on the needs of the mining community there. Joined the Labour Party in World War One. The Labour Party split over conscription. He was in the minority, I think, of, uh, being against conscription. Got elected to the West Australian Parliament uh, in 1921, and then in uh, uh, 23, uh, two rather, and in 1926, my grandfather was supposed to be dying. We heard he was dying. My father said he worked the shirt off his back to pay enough money for my mother to go out by ship. It was about a month's journey. There was nobody to look after me, so I had the great pleasure, excitement of a kid of ten going by ship and then going to Australia. When we got there, my grandfather was as fit as a flea and uh, it was chopping down a great jarret tree when we arrived. He lived another 15 years. <laughs> and, um, but I've always felt very attached to Australia. And I want to make it clear, I mean, I, I know all about the common market, yes, very nice people, all the rest of it, but 
I really do. I'm more loyal still, I, I believe, uh, to, to the Commonwealth. And um, they are uh, they're their own country. I mean, they're, they're not a, a satellite of us in any way. I am very impressed, may I say, by the uh, present uh, Prime Minister. He happens to belong to a party associated with mine, but whatever party belonged to, I'd have taken that view. And, of course, there is no one in Britain, I, I'm only a, a, an also ran, there's nobody in Britain takes more interest in Australia than the Queen Mother. The, the, the Queen of our mother, who was known as the Queen Mother, and who is now, has now reached, I think, just 90 years of old. And if anybody comes from Australia that she's ever met, uh, then there's a party, and she always invites me, I'm happy to say. So, let me say, the common market, yes, God bless them, I had a lot of trouble with the gold. As I say, he wouldn't even let me go in there at first, let, let us go in there at first, uh, because uh, he wanted to run the show. Well, Mitterrand's trying to run the show now. Though Mitterrand is a friend of mine, the gold wasn't. And he used to say, you've moored your ship opposite us, but you haven't come up the Seine, as I said earlier. And um, Ted Heath, I think, just, as I say, was so keen on it, he didn't fight for... I, but when I was Prime Minister, I did something that's never happened in British history before. I had a referendum as to whether we should stay in the common market or come out. Uh, one of the problems was, uh, and I did it by counties, I didn't do it by constituencies, because you might have a chap who was anti and then his local people voted the other way or, or vice versa. So I did it by counties and I remember I was out at Czech as the Prime Minister's country place when the results were coming out and in every place, bar one, uh, it was a 60%, between 60 and 63, 64% for uh, stay, for, stay, uh, staying in uh, and the corresponding figure against. And, uh, I, but I'm pretty sure if there's a referendum now, there'll be a lot more one to pull out because the thing has become, as I say, a creature of uh, French agriculture. One of the questions from the group, please tell your favorite story of Churchill. One was... Uh, I, I was on his staff, and I was on his staff that magic night, that important night, when we got the message from Roosevelt. I haven't told the story of the overage destroyers, I think, this morning, no, have I? Not, no, in, not no. before this I'm group. full of it, you see. <laughs> but um, I happened to be duty officer that night. Uh, Winston, now Winston, let me say, Winston liked his brandy, but Winston had been as good as gold, get right off it. There were the Nazis, 21 miles away across the channel. And, but that night, well, it was all very, very difficult, very tough. Uh, yes, and he did have a, a, a little noggin or two. And then, at three o'clock in the morning, the telephone rings, and it's the president. And I think I may have mentioned, it has now become almost a law, an international law, that if the American president phones the British prime minister, he does it at three o'clock in the morning English time. <laughs> It happened with me from Do uh, Mr. Nixon once when I wanted to give some help in the matter in Africa, to which he responded, may I say, magnificently, but I'd have preferred 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so, uh, Winston, uh, we had to wait Winston. Well, I chickened out and so did my colleague and we got the Secretary of the Cabinet, uh, who was the son of the famous uh, uh, poet laureate, 
uh, he um, wakened, he wakened Winston. Winston was none too pleased, he was slow coming too. And then um, President Roosevelt said, oh Prime Minister, he said, uh, I'd like you to know I've finished my discussions with leading congressional figures about the 50 overage destroyers you've asked for, the 50 um, mothballed destroyers they were called, because they were sort of not in active service. Uh, and he said, I'm very glad to say they don't want to make it a matter for legislation. I am free to treat it as an executive act. And so, yes, Prime Minister, you can have just one thing, Prime Minister. I'm sure that uh, Hitler will not cross the channel. I'm sure he will not be able to break through into Britain. But just in case I'm wrong, I'd like your assurance. Prime Minister, I don't want anything in writing, any protocol, any agreement, any treaty. Your word on the telephone is enough for me that if they do break ground and get uh, in, uh, and, and successfully invade Britain, you will order the 50 destroyers back to United States or Canadian ports. I can never quite understand why I said Canadian ports, but it doesn't matter. And old Winston said, Certainly. <laughs> certainly, uh, Mr. President, I will certainly give you that assurance. But that is the fate far more likely to befall the Nazi fleet than the British. Whenever I've told this story in writing, in a, in a book or, or a, a, an article or something, uh, I always spelled Nazi, N-A-H-Z-H-I. Wonderful. Can you comment on the recent expulsion of Great Britain and the Soviet Union of each other's diplomatic personnel? I, uh, I don't know any of the facts, and I don't think anybody else does. Uh, I mean, of the general public. I can think of a few words to describe it. You've got some good American words. I'm not going to use them. Uh, it is, I think, sad. Uh, I have referred earlier to the Soviet Union today. They are in a mess economically. I think we might be sens more sensible to stop showing how clever and brave we are by having a row with them. It's only too easy. I've had plenty of rows with them myself, come to that. Uh, I, I think it is most un unfortunate. Of course we're all against spying. And of course we are always, my country is one that has never spied in the last 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> and yours has never spied in the last 300 years. It's all those confounded Russians, used to be the Germans, and so on. I think we should realize that this is the kind of world we live in. Uh, and uh, I thought the Russians failed to reach the right level after the expulsion had occurred. Oh, just tit for tat and they listed 26 members of the British, at the British Embassy in Moscow. Heaven knows those people are British embassy in Moscow can't do much good or much harm or anything else, they don't get told anything. And it's the same with the American embassy, which is about 15 times the size, I think. Of, is it 14 perhaps? And so, it is sad, it, in a sense, if I had to use one word to describe uh, the Russian action on this, it's childish. But I do wish there had been more consultation. I would like to see in the House of Commons consulted. I'd like to have seen a debate in the House of Commons. I wouldn't have minded addressing one in the House of Lords to say, now look, they have behaved outrageously. 
the Russians uh, in certain recent actions, what is the right way and bring the whole experience of a lot of people who've been members of parliament, House of Lords, ministers, prime ministers and all the rest of it. I'd rather it, was, it had been thrown open to the democratic approach rather than, as I say, uh, this kind of you or another sneer at one another. I hope we shall find a way around it. I haven't been to Russia now for ooh, just over a year. As far as I know, nobody's planning to send me there in my now retiring capacity as uh, Great Britain USR Cultural Association. Uh, I must say, I'd find it rather interesting if I did go see what I could hear. And if I do, I'll send you a note and you can tell them all before I come back. Thank you. The, perhaps this question fits. Does Mrs. or Margaret Thatcher call upon you for advice? No. <laughs> <laughs> I did mention she's, she's very sweet to me. Because, I mean, not many people have held that job, really, in all our history. As I say, when I was in hospital, first flowers were from her. She provided, allowed my, my wife to use the car and so on. Uh, and she, she's really quite friendly that way. Uh, but, uh, and once or twice I've been asked to dinner parties she's having for distinguished visitors. Uh, but no, she has not asked me for advice at any time. <laughs> uh, I, mind you, I've given her some in my speeches <laughs> in the... Uh, House of Lords, no, no charge for it. What really worries me now, and seriously, is the heavy level of unemployment. I did re refer to that briefly. Uh, I used to be Director of Manpower Statistics during the war. I know my way around this particular measurement, at any rate, if I can't do any better than that. The true, uh, but 3.4 uh, 3 million unemployed, uh, well, the, the official figures vary between two and three from time to time, just over three million. I, I was terribly sick when it went to one million under me as, as Prime Minister. Now it's 3.4. But in fact, the real figure is about, I would guess, a million bigger than that. And the reason I say that is that because people can't get jobs, but they are in pension schemes, and we learned how to set up pension schemes from the United States. We learned a lot from them. Mm -hmm. They are in pension schemes, and they're saying, well, if I'm not going to get any work, just signing on the unemployment exchange, uh, the employment exchange, if I'm not going to get that, I might as well retire now and take my pension, even though I should only get perhaps 70%, 75% of what it would have been if I'd stayed till I was 60. That is why the unemployment figures are wrong. But in my own constituency, I think I've mentioned this, uh, just before I left there and since, only 10% of those children got, 10%, 8%, 10% in successive years, got jobs that looked like having any future at all, and the rest nothing at all. As I say, people have begun to write letters from comfortable houses to the press to say how terribly these children are behaving. And now, ten years' time, how terrible they are, they don't know, seem to want to work and all the rest of it. And it's a tragic thing so far as Britain is concerned. A number of questions, and indeed there are more here than we can begin to deal with, but a number of them uh, raise uh, the whole issue of Northern Ireland. For instance, are the differences in Northern Ireland intractable or do you see any workable solution? 
uh, including the possibility of the unification of Northern and Southern Ireland. How long have you got? <laughs> well, I don't think there will be any unification. I do believe the South have done remarkably well in what has been a very difficult situation. I naturally had long, uh, a great deal to do. I, I, I think I mentioned uh, meeting the IRA. Did I mention that no, earlier? Not, not publicly. Ah, well, I will now then. <laughs> Uh, I remember that, that um, it was during Mr. Heath's period as Prime Minister, that sort of break in our continuous labour thing over all those years, and I got an invitation to visit Northern Ireland and to meet the IRA. Looking back on it, it sounds like, almost like madness and very risky. And I met their chap, he was um, a lawyer, and um, the reason I went there was that we had reached Christmas. Then we went into the... And they always have a truce for Christmas. And usually just over the New Year. But this time they went on having the truce some time into the New Year. And I thought this was the time. So I had a word with this man. And he told me what he thought could be done and what couldn't be done. It, it never came to anything at the end of the day. And then when I was Prime Minister, I had another meeting with uh, a leading figure from Northern Ireland and he came over uh, to see me and I was very concerned about Jerry Fitt who is a, a Northern Irishman and a member of Parliament. There were a lot of threats on his life and I asked this man if he gave an assurance that his organisation would not get involved in anything like that. And he just sneered, is that all you asked me to come over for? Well, all right. He's not worth wasting a bullet on. Well, that was good enough for me, that's all I needed. Uh, just say one thing about Paisley. He has a tremendous American following, you know. I think most of the Americans who go there probably are anti what he stands for. But now they, he, he fills his church every Sunday night. Uh, and he's now got to the point where he has two uh, t two separate uh, services, quite apart from the morning one, where I think he has helped a little. And Dr. Paisley, and we're all very proud of the fact that he's a doctor, have had a lot of difficulty trying to find out which American university it was. <laughs> I think it was probably that one which... Well, you know what I mean. And, uh, but, but they all go to the, these sermons, and he is a powerful speaker and a magnificent figure of a man. And the story I was told by, uh, just this is j some, some years ago, just before the collapse of the whole Irish system and, and the imposition of direct rule, uh, I was told uh, this crowded chapel, or church as he would call it, I don't know, and he then said, this is the most wonderful night in history. I have wonderful news for you. A message is coming to us from the Almighty. It is now in outer space. I must have absolute silence. He was, he was a great show actor and he was having them do the same. And, and we're having an instruction from God himself. And so he went on for quite a long time. Now in outer space, so on and so forth. Now coming right into contact with uh, the uh, outer space of the earth. Now coming down to this very church. It's now coming through the roof. Absolute silence, please. Ah, I have the message. 
the Lord has ordered me to take another collection. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I would like to compliment uh, what you just said with something you're quoted of ha as having said about things religious. Somebody said to you, I don't believe in God, and you said, I wonder if God believes in you. <laughs> I haven't had an answer to that one yet. No. <laughs> Any, here's a question. What would you counsel, or what would your counsel be to someone who is very concerned with the escalating arms race? Uh... Uh, and the someone, we don't know whether he takes this viewpoint or that viewpoint or mm -hmm. whether he's a conservative, whether he's socialist, whether... A concerned oh, citizen who's, con who's yeah. concerned about the escalation toward war and what that individual, uh, John Q. Public, can do. Well, I don't know what he's do doing at the moment, what I, but assuming that he's got that worry and doesn't know where to turn, I would say that he should sit down if he's religious, obviously, we know he will seek, seek help, but uh, he should sit down carefully and consider where and how he could begin to exercise an influence, however small. And I mean by this uh, uh, politics, in fact. Uh, I think he should then decide which party he believes is more capable of giving, uh, uh, of carrying through the sort of things that he believes in making a reality of them. And I think, well, the short answer is, yes, go into politics. You don't have to do a lot of the perhaps more sordid side of politics. There is a bit from time to time, as we all know. Uh, uh, but they should go in and say, I am going into politics because of this issue that I find so important, and then really make a nuisance of themselves in, this, in the local party, whatever it is, and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, and perhaps uh, go to seminars and perhaps go to weekend conferences and learn more ideas about it. But in fact, few problems in the, this country or any other country get solved unless the people at ground level have a chance to express themselves. And that, I think, is the answer to that question. All right. Well, we are nearing the end of our time together. I remind our radio audience that you have been hearing the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in, in Minneapolis. And we've been delighted with our speaker, Harold Wilson. I'm recalling that uh, our bicentennial was held about the time that you concluded uh, your role in office as Prime Minister, 1976. And the message we were getting from, from Britain at that time during our bicentennial was, come home, all is forgiven. <laughs> Well, we're glad that uh, you came this way and spent this hour with us. We, we knew you to be a, a human being capable of, of humor, perspective, and analysis of contemporary events, and we have not been disappointed. It has been a delight, and we thank you. Thank you very much.